the minister got up to preach that Sunday morning. He wanted to talk about the character and the nature of God. He began listing the traits that he felt were pertinent. God is loving. God is just. God is forgiving. God is merciful. God is omnipotent. And then he said, and God is eternal. And it was at that moment, a youngster sitting in his father's lap in the middle of the room spoke in a very loud stage whisper and said, God is not a turtle. I think it can be difficult at times to wrap our mind around the nature of God. It's hard to fathom the character of God. And in so many ways, I believe that is especially true of the love of God. The Bible declares that God is love. And at the same time, it turns around and says, God loves. I believe that's one of the places that I need to be reminded about the character of God frequently. I need to be reminded of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of God's gracious love. I need to be reminded of what it means to be loved because God loves me and he loves you. I need that periodic reminder. When John the Apostle of Love and the senior statesman of the body at the time he wrote it in 1 John 3 verse 1 writes, he seems almost overwhelmed by the meaning of the love of God when he writes, how great is the love the Father has lavished on me that we should be called children of God. Can you imagine the meaning and the depth and the substance of understanding that God is lavishing His love on us? I have to confess that for me personally, I find that difficult to fathom at times. To come to grips with the love of God can be extremely challenging. It seems a lot easier to parse the verbs and study the syntax and exegete the passage and go through all of the rounds of conversation that the commentators write about it. to experience it. That can be the real challenge. It's difficult to go from knowing about God's love to really experiencing God's love. It seems easier for us to keep it cerebral, to think about it, to understand it at that level, when in reality, God wants us to experience it. As I've walked with God over the years, experienced trials, experienced setbacks, experienced losses, I've come to know that God is in constant pursuit 
and that his love does not falter. And it enables me to experience the love of God in ways that I never thought possible before. I have become convinced that it eases the pain of a broken heart. And it helps us recover from shattered dreams. It gives us peace in the midst of turmoil. And it gives us confidence that we are of value in the eyes of God as we are accepted by the one who matters the most. The love of God is really the capstone of his personality and the supreme expression of who he is as the person that wants to know us and to love us and to be a part of our lives. God's love really is special And it is absolutely unique in so many ways. You see, God's love is for every person. It's for us to be blessed as we come together in this community of faith. And in communities of faith all over our land and all over the world. But not only is it limited at a time when we come together like we are this morning. We need to understand that the the love of God is so pronounced and so significant that it's meant to be on every street corner and in every office building and in every school and in every market up on the face of the earth. You see, this love of God, it affects us at the very core of our being. It affects us as we think about our faith and how our faith carries us through the actions of every day. The love of God is present with us and it affects us in how we do ministry within the kingdom of God. It's only been a couple of weeks ago and when we were out in our community with Love Where You Live and we saw faces that were real, that were being served, And their burden was lifted for just a moment because we had become the hands and the feet of Jesus. We had touched them with the love of God. That's the power of the love of God taking effect and being channeled through our lives to touch us where we are. And it it affects our perspective on the life that we live. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what we've done. God is in love with you. That's a point we need to get. If you walk away from this morning without anything else, I hope that you will understand that God is in love with you. If you've given up on yourself, you've been discouraged and despondent because things aren't going well, Maybe it has to do with a relationship. Perhaps it has to do with a job. Maybe it's facing difficult illnesses. Whatever the situation is. And you have reached a point where you're just frustrated and and you're willing to give up on yourself. I want you to know that God hasn't given up on you. He is still loving you. And He will continue to do so. Maybe there's been times that you've fallen. You've stumbled in your faith. There have been failures of some kind. Perhaps it's moral. Perhaps it's ethical. Whatever it is, some kind of failure has occurred. I want you to know God has not given up on you. He is deeply in love with you. Maybe you've reached a point of frustration with God and you have snubbed God. 
a cursed God. Hear me clearly. Hear me well. God has not given up on you. He still loves you intently and immensely. If you're struggling to know how you fit in with your peer group, you wonder where your community is and you wonder where you can find a place to live and adjust and be a part of life, God hasn't given up on you. And he loves you with a love that will conquer all of your inhibitions and conquer all of your struggles and all of your failures. God's love lasts. It is absolutely steadfast. It is firm. It is fixed. It is settled. It does not change with time or circumstances. It doesn't shrink when we fail or when we falter. On Saturday, September the 18th, 1982, the U.S. government released the results of a sad investigation. The government at that time determined that an army soldier stationed in South Korea had been a defector to communist North Korea. According to the investigation that was released on August the 28th, or uh, that was done on September the 18th, and talked about a young man on August the 28th, uh, 1982. A 20-year-old private in the U.S. Army had willingly crossed the Korean demilitarized zone into North Korea for motives that no one seemed to understand. His fellow soldiers pleaded with him, don't go, but he would not turn back, and he did not respond. The day after the findings were released, his parents in St. Louis, Missouri, held a news conference on their front lawn. Wiping tears from his eyes, his father said, I've accepted the fact that my son has indeed become a defector. He has lost his credibility in this nation, and he has even lost his credibility with me. But then he said... I want you to know, I still love my son. And I want him back more than anything in this world. I love him. After all of this, I love him. God has experienced more than his share of defectors. The frustration that God must feel at times. Just think back to the era of Moses leading the children of Israel out of captivity. It wasn't long until the Israelites are frustrated with Moses and frustrated with God. I mean, they didn't like their accommodations, they didn't like what they were eating, and they were wanting a double tree, and all they got was a desert. And they complained. They didn't like it. They didn't want to be there. Where is God? He has abandoned us. He leaves us in this kind of situation and it isn't long before they choose something like a golden calf. It isn't long before they say, we want something more. 
And they turned their back on God. And God, through Moses, would encourage them and hold them accountable and practice tough love until they would turn back to him in repentance. But he never gave up on them. The time came and they're outside the promised land that God had given to them and he allows them to go in under the leadership of Joshua and soon the land has become theirs. But it isn't long before, well, they're finding other gods. And they're bowing at the feet of Baal and Molech and the other Phoenician and Palestinian and all of the other gods that were there. And they kept practicing that and snubbing God. You know the story of Judges. One time after another, God would bring his tough love there and he would hold them accountable for their infidelity. And they would cry out as they were in the pain of judgment until God would send a judge and deliver them. And for a while, they would be faithful to their God. And it doesn't change when you reach the period of the monarchy and the king's. There are those moments when they're very true to God and then there are those moments whenever they've fallen away. So much so that there is a story told in the little book of Hosea. A story of a husband and wife and the wife's infidelity to her husband. It's a gut-wrenching story of what is going on, but it's a story more than a husband and wife. It's a story of God and his relationship with Israel. And how Israel continued to abandon him and be untrue to him and practice infidelity to him. But Hosea would pursue her. He would chase after her until he would finally buy her off the slave block and take her back home. And that's the story of God. He will chase, he will pursue, he will do everything within his power to draw us back to him. Even when it means holding us accountable. But sometimes I struggle with groupthink like that. And I start wanting something a little more personal. And that's when I find another character that helps me appreciate the struggle that goes on in life. In some ways, I can certainly identify with a fellow by the name of Peter who goes through the ups and downs of being in relationship with Jesus as one of his 12 disciples. Matthew 16. Jesus asks his 12, who do men say that I am? And they respond, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John, raised from the dead. They go through a whole number... And then he asked, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it seems to get very quiet for a few moments. There is that pause. And they begin to wonder, I think, how do we respond to this? And finally Peter says, wait a minute, I know, I know. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. 
And Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You've learned this from God. Peter must have gone, yes! I got one of his questions right. But keep reading in Matthew 16 and you discover that from the mountain peak of getting the question right to a later issue, Peter's not so right. Because you see, Jesus begins to tell his 12 that there is going to be a reckoning and there is going to be a day when he will be rejected. He will go to the city of Jerusalem. They will turn his back on him and they will crucify him. And Peter says, wait a minute, no! That can't be! You're the Christ! What do you mean you're going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill you? You see, he has called Jesus aside and the text says he is confronting Jesus. And do you remember Jesus' response? Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking the thoughts of God, you're thinking the thoughts of humans. You've lost sight of what really matters. You've lost sight of the important. And you've bought in to the kingdom of the fallen world. It's not too long until Peter will go through a similar experience a graphic defection in which Peter will deny Jesus three different times. It's after his arrest. And while the strange thing we call a trial was going on, Peter is outside warming his hands in the enemy camp. And someone says, I know you, you're a Galilean. You're with Jesus. No, I'm not. Not me. I saw you with him. Uh, Mistaken identity. It couldn't be me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. No, I did see you. You talk like a Galilean. I know who you are. You were with Jesus. No, no. And he swears an oath. It was not me. And it was at that moment, the eyes of Jesus grab Peter's attention and he sees Jesus looking at him and he remembers the words of Jesus earlier that said, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. And Peter broke down and wept. He had betrayed the Son of God. He had turned against him in a moment of crisis. What do I do now? Where do I turn now? And it's there we come to the end of the Gospel of John and we find Jesus and the eleven 
on a lake bank. And Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples, and in particular with Peter. A wonderful conversation of redemption and restoration. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Simon, do you love me? Oh, God. Yes, Lord, I love you. Care for my lambs. Simon Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. And the grace and the love of God washes over Simon Peter, who just days before had said, I don't know him. God, you see, will go to any length in his pursuit of every person. God's pursuit is relentless. He will not give up on us. We can run from God by surrendering to the temptation of sin just like the prodigal did. We can pour ourselves into a faithless life. We can indulge ourselves. We can ignore God's will. And we can do things that will fly in the face of God. We can take the Father's blessings. And we can discover that once they are exhausted, there's no place to run. But we must know the Father wants us home. The Father wants us home. He loves us so intently that He wants us home. And He wants us to put on the Son's ring. And He wants us to be robed in the best robe in the closet. Because He loves us. God will not rest in his relentless pursuit. We can attempt to even hide from God. Some hide in our goodness and our morality. We use goodness as a way to stay clear of God a little bit. We believe that if we're good citizens and decent people, faithful to our spouses, stay out of trouble, well, then we're okay, right? We even attempt to hide from God in church. We've been in church our whole life, but we have this little secret. We've kept the rules. We've come to church. We've put on a mask that matches everyone else. We can do church speak with the best of them, but we've never permitted God to penetrate through our line of defenses. We've never let God in. And we keep hiding from God behind the walls of respectability and conventional goodness, even in church. God will not rest. He wants us to be in relationship with him more than anything else. He will go beyond anything that we would ever do I mean, Paul says it this way, who would you dare die for in Romans chapter 5? Maybe there's one or two, maybe your spouse, maybe your children that you would risk everything for. You would give up your physical life to make sure they're protected and cared for. But it probably wouldn't extend much beyond that. It wouldn't extend to the masses. 
It wouldn't extend to those that we don't know. He will do what we would never do. And he would do it for people that we would never do it for. The wonder is not that he died, but that Jesus died for those who were rebellious sinners, the enemies of God. That, in my mind, is the most amazing part of the whole story. But here's what it means. God's vision is that we will love him and the people around us with the same level of love that he has for us. That's what God envisions for you and for me. One day Jesus is confronted by some of the religious leaders of his day and they ask a very poignant, significant question. What's the greatest command? I can imagine some of the things that they thought that would lead to an entrapment of Jesus. Maybe if he'll answer, keep the Sabbath. We have him because he has broken the elders' rules on the Sabbath. Maybe it would say, make sure that you keep the sign of covenant. Circumcision is the sign of covenant. And when you have the sign of covenant, you're a part of the Israel of Israel and all is well. But I'm convinced he surprised them by saying, greatest command? Oh, that's to love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might and mind. To love God with everything that you have within you. And to demonstrate that with everything that we possess. And then he says there's a second one like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The message we've heard from the beginning is to love one another. 1 John 3 verse 11. It identifies us as a child of God. 1 John 4 verse 7. And love for others, why, that's our testimony to the whole world that we're truly disciples of God. And we are compelled by the love of God. We are compelled by the love of God to tell this story of love. For the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through love of God truly amazing and generous and wonderful and meant to be experienced by you and me and everyone who walks on the face of this earth let's pray together Father I pray that out of your glorious